0: So, 2 Thessalonians, we're reading the whole book, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and steadfastness faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, And to grant relief to those who are afflicting as well as to us. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us Either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord, is faithful he will establish you and guard you against the evil one and we have confidence in the lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command may the lord direct your hearts to love to the love of god and to the steadfastness of christ now we command you brothers in the name of our lord jesus christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace may not, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I want to invite you all to uh, take your Bible again and open to Second Thessalonians. As you're doing that, let me also encourage you to um, keep a bookmark on Second Thessalonians and also find Acts chapter 17, because we are going to spend uh, a few minutes there in Acts chapter 17 this morning. As you do that, let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for this time to hear from you. And Lord, we ask that you would meet with us and that you would speak. Lord, all that we do here today, it's all in vain if you are not with us. So come be with your people, O Lord, as we seek your face. And come and remind us of this wonderful truth that, Lord, you have set your love on us. And because of that, we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Knowing the end of something changes your experiences in the present. Let me, let me give you a personal example of that. A lot of you have been asking me how I, how I feel about stepping into Senior Pastor Paul's role while he's away on sabbatical, I'm trying to keep it together here. <laughs> uh, but I got to say, I actually feel very excited. I, I feel motivated. I feel energized. We have a great plan moving forward into the summer, and I'm eager to serve and to preach the word But I'll be honest, it's comforting to know that this is only for a season and that the boss man is coming back at the end of the summer. It's comforting to me personally because I know that the heavy responsibilities of being the acting senior pastor are not going to carry on indefinitely. And I'm sure that it's comforting to the staff as well because they don't have to bear the burden of me trying to be the senior pastor indefinitely they know that my power-tripping days are going to come to an end. It was about a, a week and a half ago I told Patrick to, to watch out because I told him that the first order of business as acting senior pastor was going to be to fire him for no reason. And uh, I'm pretty sure he just walked away laughing. So. And then I tried firing him on Tuesday and nothing happened. So, so there's that. All joking aside, I'm very thankful for you, brother. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. But I think you understand my point. Knowing the end of something changes your experience in the present if paul wasn't planning on coming back then being in this position would be a very different experience gotta be honest i'd be a lot more nervous i'd be a lot more afraid i'd be a lot more anxious but should everything go according to plan i know how this summer is going to end And that's what this second letter to the Thessalonians is all about. Paul is writing to the saints in Thessalonica in order to remind them of how everything will end. And what he wants to do is give them a clear and correct vision of the return of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that the Lord Jesus will surely return. And he wants them to know what exactly will happen when Jesus returns. And it's imperative that the church gets this right because if they don't, then they will fall into the danger of being overcome by fear, confusion, and disorder. And as we'll see in just a moment, that was exactly what was happening to this young Thessalonian church. Now, as Patrick mentioned, today I'm beginning a new series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, My last series, a few months ago, I finished in 1 Thessalonians, so this seemed like the natural next step but the main reason why I'm preaching through this book is because I believe that in our present time, we, the church, need to have a clear and correct vision of the return of Jesus Christ. Because if we, if we don't have this, then we're going to fall into the same danger as the Thessalonians of being overcome by the trials of our day and descending into fear, confusion, and disorder. Knowing the end changes your experiences in the present. Since it's been a few months since I finished preaching through 1 Thessalonians, I I thought it'd be helpful to give you a brief background context to this letter, because it's it's important for you to understand what the Thessalonians were going through so that you would better understand why Paul is saying the things that he is saying in this letter. So you can turn with me now to Acts chapter 17. Just to give you a, a, a bit of a better idea of where we are in the story of Acts, the, the events of Acts chapter 17 take place during Paul's second missionary journey. Paul and his fellow missionaries have, have just come out of the city of Philippi, and if you know that story, a lot has happened there. He was preaching the gospel, and then he was arrested for preaching the gospel. There was a kind of miraculous release, but he stayed until he was actually released by the guards. And then when he leaves the city of Philippi, his next stop eventually is to this bustling city of Thessalonica where their first stop is as always to the Jewish synagogues. So look with me at Acts chapter 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, that it was his custom to go into the synagogues, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's he's doing what he does best. He's preaching the gospel to unbelievers. And by God's grace, many are persuaded in the truth and saved. And as a result, the church of the Thessalonians is born for the very first time. I mean, this is some extremely exciting news. The the gospel is going forth in power. The kingdom of God is advancing. Souls are being saved. There is great reason to rejoice and celebrate in what the Lord is doing. But then look at what happens in response to all of these conversions. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. See, as people came to Christ through the faithful, spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, it wasn't just the church that came into existence. Tied to the beginning of the church, tied to the birth of the church, was also the birth of persecution. We have to understand that persecution here was so severe that Paul and his fellow missionaries were forced to leave. I mean, if you know anything about Paul's story, this is not a man who's afraid of persecution. I mean, in the previous city, he was arrested for preaching the gospel. So he's not afraid of persecution, but it's so bad here that the people who are with him force him to leave and get away, and they escape to the city of Berea, where... Interestingly enough, they're pursued and persecuted by the same guys in Thessalonica. And again, this forces him to leave Berea. He makes his way through Athens, and then he comes to the city of Corinth. And it's at Corinth where he settles down for a moment and writes these two letters to the Thessalonians. Now, the reason why he wrote these letters instead of returning in person to the Thessalonians is actually explained to us in his first letter, in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. I mean, let's just be absolutely clear here. It was not for a lack of desire that Paul didn't return to the Thessalonians. On the contrary, he's, he's deeply yearning to be with this young church that he helped plant. He, he feels afraid of leaving them in such a volatile situation, but then listen to what it says next. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. I find this little verse here incredibly fascinating I mean, what did it actually look like for Satan to get in the way of Paul returning to the Thessalonians? Unfortunately, we're not given any details as to how that happened. All we know is that it was impossible for Paul to return because of Satan. And so out of a deep love, care, and concern for this church, he wrote these letters in order to encourage them and exhort them from afar. So he wrote his first letter, 1 Thessalonians primarily to encourage the saints to endure amidst affliction. But then shortly after the delivery of this letter, he receives a report about how the Thessalonians were doing, and unfortunately, he learns that things really aren't going that well. If anything, that you, could, you could say that the situation got worse than before. And so in response to this, he wrote this second letter that we'll begin looking at today. Now, before we dive into the specific details of this text, I actually want to take some time right, right, right here at the start to, to give you a general overview of this entire letter because I don't want you to miss the, the forest for the trees. I, I want you to see the big picture and understand the main idea, and I want you to see where we're headed in the coming weeks and months because that is going to frame our study through this entire letter. So, let, let me do that, give you a general overview, and then with the time that we have left, I'm just going to jump in to the first two verses of chapter one. I'm, I'm going all Martin Lloyd-Jones here and, you know, old school Pastor Paul when he was just preaching through, to, through uh, two verses uh, in an entire sermon. So, that's what we're going to do here. We're going to do a general overview and then get right into the first two verses. Now, if I could summarize what 2 Thessalonians is all about. I would say that it is about living in light of the Lord's return. Living in light of the Lord's return. That's what this series is titled. I'm sure that you notice this as Patrick was reading through the the letter of 2 Thessalonians that the, the theme of the return of Christ is saturated in this entire letter. And again, that's because having a clear and correct vision of the return of Jesus is the antidote to all the church's problems. Knowing the end changes the experiences in the present. Now, when it comes to what was actually going on in this particular church, we learned that there were three main issues. So here's number one. Persecution was ongoing and unrelenting. Come back with me now to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. You can follow along with me. Paul says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God that for, you, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You are enduring. In verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Do you notice how he's talking about their sufferings? Affliction, persecution suffering. He, he doesn't talk about these things in the past tense or the future tense as if it's something that they only experience in the past or it's something that they're only going to experience in the future. He writes about them in the present tense as in they are currently experiencing these hardships right now as Paul is putting pen to paper and writing these words. They are afflicted Christians who are right in the middle of the fiery furnace of persecution for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first main issue. Secondly, the church was confused about the timing of the Lord's return. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 now, Paul carries on and he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Apparently, it sounds like some kind of fake news has entered into the church, and someone was going around spreading this this, this rumor that Jesus Christ has already returned, and the Thessalonian church missed it. And it's interesting because when you consider the fact that Paul actually addressed this issue to some degree, the church was still confused and therefore troubled in their faith. And then to top it all off, here's the third big issue. Idleness was a real growing concern in the life of the church. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Some among you, people in the church, are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I mean, Paul is so concerned about this issue of idleness that he almost spends one-third of this entire letter addressing that one specific issue. So, there are the three main issues plaguing the church, persecution, confusion, and idleness. And in light of all of this, within the overarching theme of living in light of the Lord's return, Paul has three specific goals in this letter that directly correspond to these three main issues. Number one, he wants to comfort the believers in the midst of their ongoing persecution. That's what chapter one is all about. We're gonna hear lots about judgment and we're gonna talk about the doctrine of hell when we get to the, late, late, the latter part of chapter one. But listen, he is writing these words to be a comfort to those who are undergoing persecution. That's chapter one. Secondly, he wants to comfort them in their confusion about the return of Christ. That's chapter two. And then thirdly, he wants to challenge them to avoid idleness and live a life of diligence. That's chapter 3. So this is how Paul encourages and exhorts them to live in light of the Lord's return. That, that's the main breakdown of this entire letter. But I also want you to see one other important detail about the overall structure of this book. If you look carefully, you'll see that each chapter actually ends with a kind of prayer. So look with me at the end of chapter one, verse eleven. Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. And what's the prayer? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And then if you go to the end of chapter 2, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And then lastly, at the end of chapter 3, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And I think there's something wonderful and beautiful about the structure of this book. Prayer is woven into the fabric of this entire letter. As Paul seeks to comfort the saints in their persecution, he prays. As Paul seeks to correct them in their confusion, he prays. As Paul seeks to challenge them in their idleness, he prays. I mean, we'll look at these prayers in greater detail when we get to that specific text, but at this point, maybe it's enough to just say that Paul, in seeking to build up this church, is utterly dependent on God to do what only God can do. It reminds me of Psalm 127, where the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Just seeing how this letter is structured alone should remind all of us and inspire us to immerse ourselves in prayer as we're seeking to build one another up in the faith. Now hopefully that all, all that information gives you a good idea of what this letter is about. The Apostle Paul wants the church to be comforted in their persecution, corrected in their confusion, challenged in their idleness to live in light of the Lord's return. All right, that's all by way of, of high level. We, we, we've seen the forest. Now I want you to come down with me into the forest and examine the trees up close. So turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle Paul begins, as he typically does with all of his letters, he, he starts with a customary greeting. And included in this greeting is who this letter is from, who this letter is addressed to, followed by a word of blessing. So chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read the opening words of the epistles, I think oftentimes we can almost too easily and too quickly skim past the first two verses and get into the meat of the letter, right? How many of you have done that in your own Bible reading? <laughs> like, I know I have, right? I can almost recite these, uh, these openings word for word because they're all very similar and they're familiar to us. But I think that is a big mistake because to blow past this too quickly is to miss some of the rich theology and the great encouragement that is found in these short and familiar verses. I mean, it is very true what it says in 2 Timothy 3:16, all scripture is breathed out by God, including the greetings of the epistles. And I want you to see here that this is more than just a simple hello. There is profound meaning in these words. So here's point number one, know where you belong. Let me ask you a question. With all the chaos occurring around us in this world, do you ever feel a little bit lost? Do you ever feel a little bit unsettled and uncertain of where you belong in this world? It doesn't really feel like we, we fit in. As our city and our country become more and more secularized, it feels more and more like we are being uprooted and displaced. The Christian values that once shaped our society are the same values that are being attacked by the people around us. And as this continues to happen, the world is going to look stranger and we are going to feel more out of place. So, in such a strange new world, where do we belong? Where does Grace Fellowship Church belong? Well, look with me at verse 1. What's the one thing Paul says about the Thessalonian church? He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, out of all the things that Paul could have said here, he chose to identify this church as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's making a critically important statement about where the church is positioned in the world. And, and he's not talking about where the church is physically. We, we, we know that. They're in the city of Philippi. That, that's obvious. That's where the saints are. That's where they gather together as the body of believers. But what Paul is talking about is where the church is positioned spiritually spiritually. What Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17 in his famous high priestly prayer is so true of this church. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. This is a church that belongs to God. This is a church that is joined together with God. This is a church that is united to God you can say that this is the essence of what a true church is. It is an assembly of believers united to God and Christ. Before Paul gets into anything else in this letter, this is what he wanted the church to remember first, where they belonged. And if we as Grace Fellowship Church are going to truly live well in light of the Lord's return, then this is what we need to realize first and foremost. Church, you belong to God. You are united to God. Before we're a church in, in Rexdale or in Toronto or in Canada, we are a church in God. Before we're a church associated with Nine Marks, TGC, Feb, or, or any other evangelical movement in this world, we are a church primarily associated with God. As far as I'm concerned, all of these other associations, partnerships, and connections can fall apart and fail and the church will be okay as long as we are connected to God. Though our sins once separated us from the life-giving presence of the Lord, our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. What does it actually mean to be in God And in Christ. Well, we don't have to guess because Paul has given us important details to the question right here in this short verse. The first thing that that, that it means is you belong in the Father's loving care. Look at what Paul says about who God is He is God our Father. God our Father. Our relationship with God isn't abstract or professional. It is intimately personal. To be in God our Father means that we are actually a part of His divine family. The theologian J.I. Packer said this about the heart of Christianity in his most famous book, Knowing God. Listen to what he says. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our adoption into God's family is central to our faith. He didn't just pay the ultimate price to keep us out of the eternal prison of hell. No, no. He went so far as to sign the adoption papers and bring us into his family so that we could truly be called children of the living God and he could truly be called our father. Somewhere in heaven, there are adoption papers with your name written on it. And that is a source of great encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, Now, there are many things that we can say about what it means to have God as our Father, but let me just give you one truth to hold on to at this point. It means, probably more than anything else, it means that you are so deeply loved and cared for. And some of you really need to hear that right now. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your experiences, regardless of what you're going through right now, you are so deeply loved and cared for by your perfect Father in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Again, in chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God would care for even these worthless sparrows that are sold for a penny, how much more his very own children? You are far more valuable to God than any other living creature. You are far more precious to God than anything else that he created in this entire universe. You are in the Father's loving care. Secondly, you need to understand that you belong in the Son's saving power. In speaking about God the Son, Jesus is called the Lord and Christ Jesus, as Lord, speaks to his authority, rule, and reign. This is the king who is on the eternal throne, and at his name, every single knee will bow. You know what that means? It means that there is no one who is more powerful than Jesus, and he's on your side. Secondly, he is also the Christ, which, as you know, is a title. It's, it's not his last name. And bearing that title speaks to him being the promised deliverer and savior of the Old Testament, God again and again promised that he would send a savior to his people, the the Messiah, and that savior would be his one and only son. Listen, he alone has the power to save souls from an eternity in hell. He alone has the power to grant you eternal life. And if you turn away from your sins, and if you put your trust in him, if you believe that he can forgive you and save you because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you will be saved. There is something wonderfully simple about our Christian faith and it's just recognizing that Jesus is the only savior in this world. So come to Christ if you haven't already. Some of you have been on the fence about this for a very long time. You've heard the gospel. There is not much that you need to do You need to turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have already done this, then you belong in the saving power of the Son of God. The Apostle Paul wrote these words not because it was just merely the normal, customary way of beginning this letter, but he wrote these words to be a sweet and savoring sound to these suffering saints. See, they may have been alienated by their fellow Thessalonian citizens, but they were united to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a Christian necessarily means that we will be alienated and ostracized by the people in this world. And some of you know exactly what that feels like. Some of you are in here today having experienced that and currently experiencing that right now, but you don't have to be afraid because the name of the Lord is a strong tower. God is a mighty refuge. Brothers and sisters, our home is with the Lord. And in our home, we have everything that we need. Everything is supplied for us in order to live holy and faithful lives until Jesus takes us into glory. So here's point number two. Know what is supplied for you. In God and Christ, we are supplied with the infinite treasures of grace and peace. Look again at verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and the other apostles include this blessing in every single one of their letters, almost word for word. But once again, this isn't just a thoughtless formula of nice-sounding Christian words. There is amazing truth and great comfort in every word. These are words that are worthy of our meditation and delight. So look at what he first gives, grace, the first blessing, Grace to you, grace being given to you, which in its most basic definition is unmerited favor. You know, there's this really great little story about the time uh, Charles Spurgeon had a bad misunderstanding with another pastor in the city of London by the name of Joseph Parker. And uh, these were brothers who, who, who were in the Lord together. They were ministering together. They were friends. They exchanged friendly letters. But there was one time, one incident where Joseph Parker talked about the poor conditions of the children admitted into Spurgeon's orphanage. And unfortunately, the message got a little bit twisted, and it was reported to Spurgeon that Parker was criticizing the orphanage itself. And if you know much about Spurgeon, then you know that the orphanage was a ministry that was very, very, very dear to him. So Spurgeon, in his fierce and fiery personality, ended up blasting Parker in public from the pulpit on the Sunday. And because all of Spurgeon's stuff was always recorded in the news and dispersed in the city, everything was written down, and it eventually came to Parker. And you know what happens when a public battle emerges People at this time didn't have Facebook, Twitter, or whatever they would look online to see what's going on, but, but they're all there. They, they want to see a good fight between these two prominent figures. So the following Sunday, a ton of people gathered at Parker's church looking for this good fight. They were, they were just eager to see what Parker is going to say, what, he, what he's going to say to blast the Prince of Preachers. So the time came, and Parker finally got up, and he stood behind his pulpit, and this is what he said. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take up that offering for him in our church, for he's doing a great work. And the people were floored, and it was reported that the people gave so much money that the deacons had to empty the plates three times during the offering time. And then all the, the generous givings were collected together and it was given to Spurgeon. Later that week, Parker was in his study working on presumably his, uh, his sermon for the following Sunday, and there was a knock on the door. Guess who it was? It was Spurgeon. And what Spurgeon did is he embraced his brother and he said, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. And I think that is a wonderful, wonderful picture of grace. Parker could have retaliated. He could have given his rebuttal. He could have defended himself and told um, the, the people that, no, this is not how the story went. But instead of doing that, he generously gave to the man who blasted him in public. That was grace. That was an action that was undeserved. You see, all the blessings that we have and are receiving from God come to us undeserved. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that we're forgiven. It is by grace that we're justified. It is by grace that we're sustained and we're enabled to obey the word of God. We don't deserve any of this. In our sinfulness, we have deeply, deeply, deeply offended a holy God and yet he still went so far as to love us and love us enough to bring us into his family. That is grace upon grace. Not only does Paul say grace to you, but he says peace and when thinking about peace, uh, I think we can easily think about it in terms of the, this kind of inner subjective feeling of, of calmness and quietness. And to some degree, there's, there's truth to that. But peace in the Bible primarily, primarily refers to the objective reality that you have been reconciled to God, it is a broken relationship restored. It is two opposing parties becoming allies. It is past enemies becoming present friends. See, the Bible tells us that we were at once at enmity with God, but by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the rebellious creature has been restored to the righteous creator. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, I'm going to be frank here not to offend you, but to comfort you. It does not matter how you feel in this moment. Your feelings are irrelevant in light of the reality that you have peace with God right now. You are no longer living under the wrath of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ And the peace that you have with God is a peace that will always be there for you each and every single day. Because notice where this grace and peace come from. Verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Between verses one and two, Paul repeats himself basically word for word here. In verse 1, he says, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you read it and when you hear it, that might sound a little bit redundant to you. I mean, why not just keep it sweet and concise and short and say, grace and peace? Because he does that in other parts of his letters or in other letters. But, but I think Paul does this because he wants to make it absolutely clear here to these suffering saints that the one they are united to is the one who gives grace and peace. If you are in God and Christ, then there is grace and peace in God and Christ. And that will never go away. Yes, we are living in a strange new world. And I don't I don't know this for sure because I'm not a prophet, but as I look on the horizon of where our society is headed, I can't say that it's going to look any easier to be a Christian. And I don't think that should surprise us. If, if people were, were willing to go so far as to persecute the king, then do you think the world's gonna be afraid to persecute his followers? For a servant is not greater than his master. We don't know what exactly the future holds in store for us, but friends, this we do know that Jesus Christ will return one day in power and in glory, and he is going to set everything right. And that is a day that we need to keep our eyes fixed on. But we also need to know that until Jesus returns, there is grace sufficient for every weakness and every failure. And there is a peace that transcends all of our anxieties and all of our troubles because we belong to God. And Because we belong to God, because of his great love, we are not overcome. Friends, I wanna invite you to take your song sheet and let's stand and sing about that great confident truth that we will never be overcome because of the great love of our God.